This comes from Genesis chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and grew and he was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac, your, your, Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child, of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her head and voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of the God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I'll make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of of Egypt, the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful for this day as we continue to traverse through the book of, of Genesis, Lord. And so I pray as Brenda comes up here, Lord, that you remove him, remove his words, and just push forward the message that you have for us today. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Several, several years ago, I was leading a small group of um, recovering addicts. And there was a man in my group that I, I greatly admired. He came every week, and I could see that God was doing a great work in his life. He was working his program. He was doing all the right things. He was coming back, as we say. And most importantly, I saw him working with others to help them along in their journey. But I knew that he had some legal troubles, and there was something going on with him and his ex-wife. And I remember one night he came to us and he said, uh, have a hearing in the morning. Would you guys pray for me? And so we did. We, we gathered around him and we laid hands on him. 
and we prayed for him that God's will would be done in his life. And then I didn't see him again for about five years because he went to prison. And I have to say, this was one of those testing moments for me. Like, I didn't know what God was up to. Like, it didn't make sense to me that just when this guy's getting his life together, just when everything's going well, why would God use that moment to have him go to prison? And a few years later, uh, he made some kind of a deal to get early release. It, it really wasn't much of a deal. There were all these rules about where he could live and where he could go and where he could work. And it was really hard for him as a felon to find and keep a job. And yet through all of that, he kept coming back. He kept coming to group. He kept doing the next right thing and staying sober and helping others on their journey of recovery. And what, so one evening I asked him, I said, how, how is it that you can remain so committed in the midst of all of this kind of injustice that has happened to you? And he looked at me the way he just had this way of looking at me. He raised one eyebrow and he said, Brandon, are you, are you making the mistake of thinking that I was always such a great guy? He goes, you've only known me since God got a hold of me. He said, but I was a mean old drunk for a long time. And I took a woman who loved me and I turned her into my most bitter enemy. And then he said, there's nothing that has happened to me that I didn't bring on myself. I think about this often, guys. I, my poor choices in life, they have certainly had their consequences broken relationships and missed opportunities and pain and suffering for me and for others. And what my friend helped me see, though, was that the presence of consequences in my life is, is not evidence of the absence of God. In fact, when I look back over my life, I see that God is the common thread that is kind of holding everything together despite all my best attempts to tear it apart. So today's message, uh, it's going to be about sin. But, it, but it's just as much about God's faithfulness. And as we look at the text today, would you be brave enough to, to think about those poor choices that you have made in your past? You know, the things that you regret. Maybe you're already experiencing the consequences of those choices, or maybe you're waiting to see when those consequences are going to arrive, or maybe you've just experienced God's mercy, and, there, and it doesn't seem like there has been consequences. Maybe you feel like you've gotten away with something. Would you be brave enough to keep that in mind as we look at this moment in the life of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael? Would you keep that in mind? Because I think this story is going to help us see how God relates to us in the midst of our sin. The big idea this morning is this. God's faithfulness to keep his promises is more powerful than our faithless attempts to stand in his way. And I want to look at three aspects of God's faithfulness. And the first of that is this. God's faithfulness means we can trust him to keep his promises. 
So after weeks and weeks of of hearing about Abraham and hearing about this promise that God made to him, we're seeing finally that God is keeping his promise. He's given Abraham a son. And the circumstances of Isaac's birth, are they're truly miraculous, right? Because Sarah has been barren her entire life, and she's like 100 years old, way, way past the age of bearing children, and yet here is a son. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that this is a work of God, and there's no doubt that this is the child that God meant when he made his promise. Now, there's a couple of things we need to take note of about how God kept this promise. And the first is that the verse tells us that God visited Sarah. And the word used there, the Hebrew word for visited is pakad. And this particular word has a, has a kind of weightiness to it. It's not just like a casual visit or like he stopped by. It's a word that is used in Scripture for those moments when God intervenes either to bring blessing or punishment. It's the same word that Joseph uses when he tells his uh, brothers that, that God is, will visit them and, and take them out of Egypt. And it's the same word that God uses when he tells Israel that he will, he will come to them and take them out of exile in Babylon. See, this is more than just a, a blessed event the birth of a child. It's even more than the birth of a child to a barren family. This is a key moment in the life of God's covenant with all of mankind through which uh, he will bring about our redemption. He will bring his people out of bondage to sin and into eternal freedom. That's how big this moment is. We also Note that we're told that God did as he had said and as he had promised and that he did it at the time of which God had spoken. This is kind of repetitive on the part of Moses who wrote this. Moses is repeating himself uh, to kind of give emphasis to this. He really wants us to understand that we can trust God to do what he has said he will do and that we can trust that God will always do it in his own perfect timing. I think this has obvious practical implications for our everyday lives, doesn't it? We see a lot of promises of God in his word, his words, right? His word is what he has said. And we can trust him to be faithful to keep those promises. When he says that we don't need to worry about what we will eat or what we will wear, we know that he means it. When he says that he will guide our paths and uh, make our paths straight, we can rest assured that he's not going to lead us astray. He promises to guard us from evil, and that means that he will never leave us or forsake us. We can trust in his protection. He promises us wisdom if we ask for it, and we know that we can trust in his teaching. And he promises us joy and peace despite our circumstances. And we can expect it to be there because God is faithful. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel. God is not promising us wealth. He's not even promising us good health 
or a lack of conflict or a lack of struggle in our lives, but he is promising us an abundant life of freedom if we follow Jesus Christ. And the birth of Isaac is just one more example of when God kept his promise so that we can know that he is trustworthy. Another thing to note, Abraham uh, circumcised Isaac when he was eight days old. As an infant, he was brought into the covenant through the shedding of blood, and he was, after all, the child of the promise. Ultimately, this is part of the story of God's faithfulness to all of mankind. So beyond kind of our everyday concerns, the birth of Isaac is the beginning of God's ultimate promise to bring the ultimate child of the promise, Jesus Christ, whose blood would be shed for all of those who believe. So this story reminds us that God is faithful, but there's more to that. It goes on, and it also reminds us of the devastating and dividing nature of our sin. And that brings us to the second aspect of God's faithfulness, which is God's faithfulness often does not remove the natural consequences of our faithlessness. Abraham and Sarah's joy at the birth of Isaac is fairly short-lived because by the time he is weaned, which would probably be right around age two or three, it becomes clear that there's this threat in Abraham's house. And we know that this threat is just a direct result of all kinds of sinfulness. We can look at Ishmael's sin. At Isaac's weaning feast, Ishmael is seen mocking him with laughter. The Hebrew word here is the same word that we saw a couple of chapters back when Lot was trying to warn his sons-in-law of um, the impending destruction of Sodom. It says they thought he was mocking. They thought he was jesting. It's that same word It's later used in the story of Joseph when Potiphar's wife accuses him of of breaking into her room so he could mock her and laugh at her. And it's important for us to get the picture right in our mind, right? Because you may be picturing two kids kind of playing together and one of them laughing at the other, but, but that's not what happens. See, there's an age difference between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is a young man at the time of the feast. He's about 17, 18 years old, and he's mocking a toddler. But, you know, besides the fact that he's just kind of being mean, I, I think that Ishmael's sin is indicative of a, of a bigger issue. Ishmael's laughter reminds us of Sarah's laughter. Not so long ago when she was mocking God's promise that she would have a child Her unbelief in God's faithfulness led directly to the sinfulness of Abraham taking a second wife. And not only did she uh, tempt her husband to infidelity and abuse a young woman entrusted to her care, but she demonstrated her lack of faith in that she attempted to bring about God's promise in her own strength. And I bet you when she saw Hagar's son mistreating her own son. It must have brought to mind her own sin when she mistreated Hagar following the birth of Ishmael. 
Now, Hagar, she was certainly a victim in all of this, caught up in this web that's spun by Abraham and Sarah, and yet she was not without sin herself. Remember, when she was able to conceive and have a child, she looked at Sarah with contempt. She had contempt of Sarah's barrenness, and her mockery of Sarah for being barren was sinful. And Ishmael's mockery of Isaac, I I have no doubt, was in part the result of growing up in a house where there's this constant talk about contempt and resentment of Sarah. But let's not forget who's most at fault in all of this mess, which is Abraham. See, we read in the text that he's displeased or distressed about what's happening He sees the result of his sinfulness right in front of him. There's conflict in his household. He now has irreconcilable differences with his illegitimate second wife and her son. And he loves Ishmael. But he sees this young man. But he sees that this young man is threatened by the birth of Isaac. And if they continue to try and keep this family Together, things are going to go bad very fast. Now, my temptation when I encounter this this story of Abraham is really to think of him as kind of the villain. Because, see, women are not treated well around him. And and I think that part of the problem is cultural. It's, It's nearly impossible for me to get my mind around how men and women related to each other in the ancient world. It's hard for me to walk a mile in his sandals, right? Like, the, the other part of the problem is that the Bible, the Bible is not a novel. You know, I'm given a lot of facts, but we're not given a whole lot in the way of context. We don't know what, what thoughts are going through people's minds. We don't know what emotions that they're feeling or expressing. And this word in our text, it says that Abraham was displeased or distressed. And that's a little bit helpful. We know that he's not happy about the situation, but... I looked at that word in the original Hebrew, and I think it might better be translated as he grieved. See, Abraham is experiencing a great loss. It's as if someone is dying. And this brings a necessary complexity to Abraham that I believe helps, him, helps us understand him a little bit better in this moment. The last time there was major conflict with Hagar, remember, Abraham just kind of washed his hands of the matter, and he said, you, you two women kind of figure it out. He turned it over to Sarah. I think he was maybe just dealing with that natural tension that arrives anytime you disrupt the sanctity of your marriage by bringing in another person. He tried to make it their problem to deal with, and he ignored the fact that it was his lack of faith that got them into the mess. But now it's been 17 years I think Abraham has matured. I mean, his name has changed. He, and I think he loves his firstborn son. Maybe he even loves Hagar, his second wife. I think many of us know what it's like to watch our children grow up, right? And then they move away. Sometimes they go to college. Sometimes they go to the military. Sometimes they leave and start a family of their own. And sometimes they leave because... Our relationship with them is so broken. And unfortunately, many of us know the pain 
that comes and the heartache that comes from divorce, whether it's our own or that of our parents. God's word tells us that Abraham was grieved when he realized the extent of this situation. He knew that he was about to lose people that he cared about. He knew that he was never going to see Ishmael and Hagar again. And I think that he understood that it was his sin that put him in that situation. Have you ever had to grieve over your own sin? Have you ever realized that your poor choices have really made a mess of things, that you've really hurt people that you care about? I have. I know what it's like to fall asleep in a jail cell. I know what it's like uh, to hear my wife cry because I've confessed something horrible to her. And I know what it's like to see fear in my child's eyes because daddy's so angry. I think I tend to make Abraham the villain because I know myself. I've used and manipulated people, and but for the grace of God, I would still be that way. If you struggle with this and you want to better understand Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, well, then I would say start by taking a deeper look at yourself because we're all the villain in our own stories. It's nobody's sin but our own that separates us from a holy and perfect God and creates our need for a Savior. But let's move on. We, uh, we need to take a moment and talk about Hagar's status um, within Abraham's house. Remember, she began in the story as the handmaiden of uh, Sarah. That meant she was a servant. She was being taken care of as a part of, of Abraham's household. It, she might have been a little bit less than a servant. I don't think she had the right to just leave if she wanted to. And, you know, Sarah apparently felt it was, she was hers to give away. So I think for all practical purposes, she was a slave. But we're not really told if, if Hagar was keen about becoming Abraham's second wife, but she was given that status and title. And that means she was not Abraham's concubine. She was his wife. And as a wife, she had certain rights. She could not be kicked out of their house unless Abraham and Sarah both agreed. And her son had a claim of an inheritance. And in this current mess, right, now we see that Sarah is now referring to her not as wife, not as handmaiden, but as slave woman. She's now maybe being called what she truly is. And I think this is just further evident of this on ongoing conflict between Sarah and Hagar. There's tension in Abraham's house. And by refusing to call her wife, I think Sarah's trying to make it easier to get rid of her. But we have to note a couple of things here. The first is that God himself refers to Hagar as slave woman. Now, I don't think he's devaluing her as a person. I think he's just calling a spade a spade. And I think he's making it clear that he does not see any validity in her marriage to Abraham. Likewise, God refers to Ishmael as the boy, while he refers to Isaac by his given name. 
I think God is not condoning the sinful union of Abraham and Hagar, nor does he see Ishmael as a legitimate heir. Abraham and Sarah's attempts to kind of legitimize this sinful thing that they did by giving people fancy titles, it doesn't actually change the reality of anything. God instituted marriage between one man and one woman, and there's nothing that we can do that changes that. And so God condones Sarah's plan to cast Hagar and Ishmael out. To see, God had a plan to build a nation from the offspring of Isaac, and so it was necessary to remove the threat of Ishmael. But God's approval of sending away Hagar and Ishmael did not mean that he was abandoning them. It was only meaning that he was protecting Isaac. What does this mean for all of us? It, it means that while God's grace is amazing and, and ultimately our sin is dealt with, you know, because we've been reconciled to God through the life and the work of Jesus Christ, it's not the same thing as saying we don't need to worry about our sin anymore. See, sin will destroy our lives. It'll ruin our relationships, estranging us from the people that we love. Just like my friend went to prison and now he lives as an ex-con, you know, the effects of our sin, they can linger for the rest of our lives. Jesus died to pay the price for our sin, to reconcile us to a holy God, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to overcome temptation and deal with our sin nature. This is why uh, in Ryan's favorite quote from John Owen, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. My challenge to you this week is spend some time thinking about your relationship with sin. Are you actively engaged in a battle to overcome it? Or are you just letting it run right over you? Or maybe you're not giving it any thought at all. See, we gotta, we got to really watch out about becoming apathetic about sin. It's a real threat that will have devastating consequences if it's not dealt with. Eventually, if we let it rain in our lives, we will wind up just like Abraham, grieving our loss. And yes, Jesus died for our sin, but we also want to avoid behaving like Jesus died to give us a license to sin. Remember in the words in Romans 6, where it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? We want to live in freedom from sin, not have freedom to sin. But there's one more aspect of God's faithfulness that we need to look at today, and that is that God's faithfulness transcends our lack of faith. God, uh, God's faithfulness is not predicated on our faithfulness. And I think our passage today demonstrates this so clearly. God keeps his promise to Abraham and Sarah despite their lack of faith. 
Now, we know that Abraham had faith because we're told that it was counted to him as righteousness. But, but Abraham and Sarah, they did not always act like they were people of faith, right? On two occasions, Abraham uh, fails to trust God for protection when he puts his wife's life and virtue at risk by calling her his sister. And of course, when they got impatient of waiting for God to fulfill his promise, they tried to take matters into their own hands. And yet, we see in Genesis 21.1 that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. God kept his promise to Abraham despite his faithlessness. And God kept his promise to Hagar despite her lack of faith. Remember back in chapter 16 when Hagar had run away and and then she spoke directly with God and he promised her that she would have a son and that he would multiply her offspring so that they could not be numbered. And yet when she finds herself exiled this time and her resources are running out, she is immediately despairing. It says in verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. See, it seems like Ishmael is near death. And it's understandable that Hagar would be distraught, right? But instead of trusting in God's promise and calling out to him for help, she simply kind of gives up and despairs. And yet God is faithful in this moment. And he says, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. See, it was tough for a while, but God blessed Hagar And she was free from the bondage of being a slave. And she and Ishmael, they went on to make a life for themselves in this wilderness. And God never left her, and he never left her son. It says God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow, just like Ryan. You guys maybe don't know this, but he was the state champ of Kentucky when he was in high school for archery. So He lived in the wilderness of Paran. Ishmael did, not Ryan. And his mother <laughs> took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Hagar and Ishmael's life was kind of a foreshadowing of what happened later to Israel as they wandered in the wilderness and had to learn to daily rely upon God for their provision. Man, it's such good news that God does not require us to be ever faithful in order to receive his faithfulness in return. Man, if perfect faithfulness was the requirement to be reconciled to God, then there's none of us in this room who would ever see heaven. But thankfully, God keeps his promise to us despite our lack of faith. See, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, they're no different from us. We all struggle to live by faith. And fortunately, faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we kind of create for ourselves. The problem with a message like like this one, 
that, you know, one that's focusing on sin, is that, that we always have this tendency to think that the solution to sin is more obedience. I'll just try harder to be good, and then God will be pleased with me. But this is the problem uh, that was once facing the church in Galatia. See, Jewish legalists had infiltrated the church, and they were demanding that the, that the Christian people return to this practice of strict obedience to the Jewish law. And they felt that, that people were being justified by their good works, not by faith alone. And in Paul's letter to the Galatian, he, he addresses this situation in part by calling to their memory this story of uh, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, he does it as an allegory. In Galatians 4, 21 through 31, this is what it says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's kind of drawing a comparison between the conflict in the church at Galatia and the conflict that had arisen all those years ago in Abraham's family. And he says that Hagar, in his allegory, represents the covenant from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses received the law, right? And he connected her with the Jerusalem of Paul's day, enslaved to Rome and run by Jews who were still enslaved to the law. Contrary to this, Paul implies that Sarah represents the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace. And he connects her with the Jerusalem above, the heavenly city that will one day come to earth, the city, the new city, our namesake. That's why we call this New City Church. Now, referring to the conflict in Abraham's time, Paul says that the son of the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the son of the spirit, Isaac. And he says that that same conflict is happening in Galatia. And the solution he gives comes from the words of Sarah, cast out the slave woman and her son. In other words, the legalists had to go. They had to go because they were threatening God's plan for the redemption of mankind. 
the same reason that Ishmael had to go. And the lesson I would love for all of us to take away from today is this. Take sin very seriously because it is destructive. But don't fall into the trap of the legalists where we neglect the beauty and freedom that only comes from God's grace. And I think that the key to all of this is found just a few verses down in Galatians 5.16, where we are told, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, that conflict, it continues within us, flesh against spirit. But our obedience right, our freedom from sin, this comes from a close relationship with Jesus Christ as we abide in him and walk by his spirit. It's not the other way around. We don't get close to Jesus by obediently earning his favor. That's legalism. And legalism is faithlessness. We abide in him first and obedience will follow. Church, what in your life is keeping you from making time to abide in Christ? Is it legalism? Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's apathy. Whatever it is, whatever in your life is that slave woman and her son, cast it out and live in the freedom of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you that you can be trusted to do what you say you will do. And there are so many promises for us found in your word. Lord, help us to have faith. Would you increase our faith? Would you increase the faith of everyone in this room right now? Would you give us faith to believe your promises and faith to act on that belief. Lord, we love you and we trust you with our lives. Though we are sinful and though we are faithless, we know that you have a great faithfulness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.